The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So my friend Andrea, who usually does this group and who also is in the same, uh, has been in the same teacher training program, uh, had invited me to come down here and do a series about the Brahma Viharas, or the divine abodes. <clears throat> and uh, it's one of my favorite Dharma topics, so I was very happy to come down and do that. So these are uh, four particular states of mind and heart that the Buddha encouraged us to cultivate in our practice. And the practice of cultivation is different than the mindfulness practice that some of you may be used to, or the vipassana practice. But also it's kind of the other side of the coin. So they're very similar in some ways. So in order to actually be present with something or someone right, in a skillful way, it actually takes a good deal of kindness. And if you have some kindness and interest in someone, then you're actually usually paying attention to them, right? So you can think about this in terms of your mindfulness practice. Um, when you're paying attention to your breath or to your body, something like that, right? It's good to check in sometimes, like, what is the attitude with which I'm attending to this, right? And uh, I think Andrea tends to teach uh, in this way of paying attention to sort of, like, is there any lens that's there? So am I paying attention to it with a sort of, like, when will you leave? Knee pain? you know, kind of uh, angle? Uh, are you paying attention to it with a sort of distant, uh, cold, clinical observation angle? Right? Or is there actually some sense of warmth and connection? Right? Uh, actually an intimacy with experience, intimacy with our own direct experience of life. Right? So that's the quality that uh, kind of going for in the mindfulness practice uh, to be able to practice well. And it's always... Uh, practice of kind of going in and out of balance of that. And then the metta practice, which is the first of these four uh, divine abode states, is often translated as uh, loving kindness or just generically kindness. Or to make it seem even less grandiose, it's just a sense of friendliness. So friendliness to others, friendliness to our experience. And the particular aspect that is important to recognize is that it's unconditional love, right? Or uh, as uh, sometimes called the force of unstoppable friendliness. So not the kind of friendship that's like, okay, as long as you behave in the certain ways, I'll be friendly towards you. But if you uh, start to veer from that path, then I'll go into resentment or hatred. So it's the kind of friendliness that allows something or someone to be the way that it is. So there's some acceptance of that person, of that experience, even if it's not perfect, actually. I had an experience um, over this, uh, the holidays, of going to an 80th birthday party for a family, friend, kind of auntie kind of person in my community. And uh, it was such a beautiful um, celebration of this woman's life. So she's 80 and she'd had uh, you know, some amount of difficulties in her life, as many people do. Her husband died uh, when she was probably in her 40s, leaving her with two teenage girls and one young uh, elementary school-aged son to raise. And uh, she was of the generation that it was expected that your husband would have the career and you would look after the kids if you were the woman. So she wasn't, didn't have a lot of education or um, 
to go on to take care of the family, but she did uh, what she could and uh, raised her kids. They all got married, uh, had uh, their own kids. So now she has um, seven grandkids, uh, six of whom threw this 80th birthday party for her. The, seven, the youngest one was like seven, so he was not really too involved in the organization of the parties. But the other, like between 25 and 30. And uh, this woman just had a beautiful spirit about her life of generosity and of loving kindness. Like this metta quality just exudes from her. She likes to feed people. She's always very kind to whoever comes. Uh, and she's very not uh, ostentatious person. So you know, she's never won any awards. She probably doesn't have a resume or, you know, whatever. And uh, just the love, like probably 100 people came from around the country, uh, and actually even uh, Canada, to be there for her, all of her nieces and nephews. Uh, you know, I chose to stay longer uh, from California, and people came from Toronto. And it was just this beautiful... Um, showing of love back to her, which I think was uh, returning of the love that she's given to all of us over all these years. So that being said, it's not like her life uh, is perfect. So actually one of her daughters has uh, multiple sclerosis, is in her 50s, is struggling with that. Uh, one of her kids, their marriage didn't work out in a difficult uh, situation with that. But even with all of that, there was an ability to recognize, yeah, these things are there. These things are not perfect. No one was pretending that these didn't happen. Uh, but also a recognition of her importance in everyone's life. Uh, and just the way that she's lived her life has affected so many people. Right? So we all have that opportunity, actually, to practice that, you know, to cultivate this quality of kindness in every interaction that we have. Right? So with someone at the uh, Bay Bridge Toll Plaza, or with someone who's serving you in a store, right? Uh, with those in your family, right? Uh, with people who sit next to you on the BART, right? It's interesting to notice, like, well, what is the quality of my mind, or what's the, the kind of relationship that I have to people around me, right? So in this uh, practice, you know, as we did it now, we started with um, someone who's sort of easy for us to uh, wish well for. And in the cultivation of the state, we start with the easiest person, animal, whatever, and then we sort of gradually go uh, towards more and more difficult. So you just start with someone who's called the sort of benefactor, traditionally. It's like someone it's really easy for you to wish well for, right? Then you scale down to sort of the good friend category. So there's someone who, yeah, they're your buddy, but, you know, sometimes maybe they annoy you or, you know, don't do everything right, right? A little harder. Then you scale down to the neutral person category, Right. So this is like someone you don't really know uh, at all. So you're a generic fellow human being who's uh, sitting next to you in traffic, is riding on the bus with you, uh, whatever, right? And then you move on to the category of the difficult person or the enemy, dun-dun-t, who is, you know, whoever it is in your heart at that time is really difficult for you, right? And then peppered in there is also the category of yourself. So this is actually a very important category to include. And you might notice that at different times, yourself is actually the easiest to love, or sometimes you've sunk down to the bottom of the uh, difficult person category, depending on the day or time or you know, what you've just done. Right? But it's really important to cultivate this feeling towards yourself too, this quality of metta. Right? So how this also uh, connects to the Buddhist path in general is uh, in terms of uh, what's called wise effort, Right. So this is one of the links on the Eightfold Path. 
And in wise effort, uh, the recommendation is to, first of all, notice what it is that's come up, right? So notice, is this a skillful, wholesome state of mind-heart, or is it an unskillful, unwholesome state, right? If it's a skillful state that's arisen, right, then we should cultivate that along, right? We want to continue that. And we want to understand what are the conditions that create these wholesome states to arise. So wholesome states being like generosity, this friendliness, compassion, right? So when those states come, it's good to notice them and actually to try to help them along, right? Cultivate those. And also to understand what are the conditions that lead to the arising of this for me, right? And then on the other side, it's to notice when the unskillful, unwholesome states arise. So revenge, uh, anger, uh, jealousy, hatred, right? To know when those states arise and then to try to let go of them, right? So those ones are not ones that you want to follow along, lead to unskillful places, unhelpful places for yourself and others. And to understand what's the conditions that lead to the arising of these kinds of unskillful states, right? And so then can I try to avoid those conditions, let go of those conditions, right? So in some ways it's like in our hearts there are these different kind of like furrows that we fall into, right? And like I was describing this older uh, friend, you know, she has this deep uh, sort of groove of kindness and generosity in her heart, right? And then she's cultivated that along through her interactions with people, you know, uh, throughout her life, right? And you meet people at different times in your life, and you can see, like, we're all a mixed bag, granted, right? But people have different qualities that tend to emerge, sort of more or less, right? So we all have sort of different grooves in our heart that are sort of more deeply uh, dug, so to speak, right? So for some people, it's like fear comes up a lot, right? For some people, they have sort of an angry temperament, like that comes up a lot. For some people, they have very uh, compassionate, naturally compassionate temperament, it's interesting to notice this even in little kids, right? Because sometimes you can see with little kids, uh, you know, they don't, they don't seem to be a totally blank slate, right? Like they already have these little temperaments going on and some of them have more of a temper and some of them are more like greedy and some of them are more generous, right? So we all come to this world with some uh, different mix of uh, character conditions, so to speak, right? You could call them karmic conditioning, right? And then there's sort of what we do with that. So which ones do we cultivate along uh, and which ones uh, do we not, right? So it's kind of like there are these different, you know, trenches that we're digging. So which, which are we digging deeper so that we would happen to fall into them more, you know? Do you want to fall into love and kindness more or do you want to fall into jealousy and anxiety more, right? So what arises is not uh, really under our control. So that's really actually from past causes and conditions, right? So we have to pay attention to what is it that's here now, right? What is it that's arising now? Is this something that I want to continue? Is this actually the trench that I want to dig deeper, or is it not, right? Uh, And if it is, then to know that and to cultivate that, right? So this is one of the ways of cultivating our own uh, mind and heart, which is the path towards happiness, away from suffering, towards liberation, right? So this seems like kind of mundane sometimes when compared to articulations of the path that's more um, sort of mystical and enlightenment and stuff like that, right? But it's all the same thing in some ways, right? It's all going in the same direction, right? 
And in fact, for most of us, we spend most of the time in our life interacting with people uh, in our daily life, right? Not in purely sitting in meditation, right? Or even when we're not interacting with others, just interacting with ourself, right? So noticing what's the quality in our heart that's arising now. And is this something that's helpful, skillful, we want to continue along, or something we want to let go of? It's just a really helpful uh, practice that you can do in your daily life, uh, no matter what's happening. So to back up a bit, the Brahma Vihara has these four qualities. So the metta one is this sense of kindness, well-wishing, and that's kind of sort of the baseline one. So in some ways, this is sort of like the roadmap for your heart for living a wise life. So if you can sort of establish yourself in a general sense of well-wishing for others, then that's a really good thing. Right? Uh, it's interesting to notice also, what is my, my uh, relationship to others? Uh, particularly sort of this neutral person category, right? So sometimes it's easy to notice the people who I really love and the people who I really dislike, right? Those ones are like starkly obvious, right? But there's a whole bunch of people sort of in the middle, people, animals kind of in the middle, right? And what's my relationship to them, right? So if you ever get on an airplane or even get on a train or a bus, right? So what's my relationship to the people around me, if any, right? So am I ignoring them? Uh, am I worried that... Uh, I don't want someone to sit next to me, so, you know, kind of sense of fear or uh, guardedness. Uh, do I have a sense of us all as actually being on this same journey, like actually literally <laughs> in this moment, right, on this train car or airplane, right? Uh, a lot of times we're just sort of concerned with ourselves, but not actually taking a moment to connect with like, oh, look, here we all are on this little vessel. Oh, may we all be happy, you know. And you actually have the possibility of shifting your relationship to people around you in all these different circumstances, right? In line in the grocery store, right? Uh, walking through airports, you know, uh, walking down the street, anything, right? Sitting in traffic. You can actually cultivate this in your heart. Just like, oh, may we all be happy. Here we are stuck on 101 again, right? May we all be happy. Most people are probably not happy, but may we be happy, <laughs> right? So you have your uh, general sense of kindness, loving kindness, so what happens if you meet someone who's obviously not happy, who's suffering a lot, right? So someone who's suffering, it seems disingenuous to say, may you be happy, right? They're already not happy, right? So then it's actually to connect with them in that suffering. And this brings up the quality of compassion. Right? So compassion is uh, suffering with, so connecting with the suffering of someone and having your heart moved with that, right? There's a warmth to that quality. Then what happens if you are of this general sense of well-wishing, but someone's already happy? Then again, it seems like, well, why am I wishing they're happy? Because they're already happy, right? So then there's this quality that we can cultivate of appreciative joy, it's called. There's not even a good word for it in English because it's such a rare thing to come across, right? There's actually just being happy at someone else's happiness, right? So with some people who are we're close to, this sometimes comes easily, right? So if your friend or partner, like... Uh, win something or, you know, they do well in their job or something like that. Sometimes it comes naturally, just like, oh, I'm so happy for you, that's great. You know. But you can actually cultivate this quality with anyone. So even uh, walking down the street when you see a dog wagging their tail, right? It's like, oh, look, they're happy. Oh, I can be happy about that. You don't actually have to be happy for what they're happy about, right? <laughs> but you can just connect with that happiness and that can bring you happiness, right? And then the fourth one of the Brahma Viharas is this quality of equanimity or balance. Right? 
So this is actually kind of the stabilizing uh, force underneath all of them, which is to recognize that our wishes for others uh, don't actually control people's lives. So we can wish well for people. We can try to have compassion. Uh, we can be happy when ha- good things happen, right? But actually, everyone's lives are unfolding according to their own uh, karma. Right? So it's just recognizing, you know, things are the way they are. I can wish well for you, but that doesn't mean that you're going to do this or that, or that your life is actually going to be perfect, right? Uh, so it's kind of recognizing the reality of that and being okay with that, right? Being at peace. It brings a certain stability of heart, of mind. So we'll talk about all of these uh, in the ensuing weeks, the other three, the compassion, the joy, and the equanimity. For each of these, there's something that's called a uh, far enemy, so the thing that's like the opposite of that, and something that's called the near enemy. So it actually looks like it, but it's not quite that. So with the metta, or the kindness one, So the opposite is when you feel totally unkind or hatred, right? So that's clearly the opposite. So if you actually hate someone, you're cursing them, you don't wish them well, right? That's the opposite of well-wishing. The thing that's like close but not actually that is considered love with attachment. So this is actually um, probably a more common variety in the human condition for us to come across than uh, love uh, without conditions. And sometimes you don't know that your love is conditional until the conditions change and the rug gets pulled out from under you and uh, you're like, wait a minute, yeah. That's not okay, yeah. I don't feel that way about you anymore, right? So it's just to notice that, right? So this love with attachment. So the attachment could be, uh, you know, I love you as long as you uh, will do the dishes and do the laundry and do these chores. and you know. Or it could be, I'll love you as long as you stop smoking, right? Or it could be, I'll love you as long as you uh, always say nice things to me and get me uh, the right gift and the appropriate holidays, right? You know, uh, you know there's any number of different conditions that could be there for this love with um, attachment. Or it could be even just simply like, you know, I love you and I don't want you to die, you know? Uh, you know, that's a hard one to get around because, uh, you know, people are going to die, but, you know, there comes the equanimity again of like, yeah, people are on their own journey. Our lives have different lengths, right? So uh, things are the way they are, right? So can we love people with this sort of open-handedness, right? As opposed to the, the tight-fistedness. Can we love them and allow them to be the way that they are? Right? And can we love ourselves in the same way too? Right? So this quality of metta, of kindness. So what are the conditions we put, put upon our own love for ourselves? Right? So is it that I love myself as long as I don't mess up again, right? But if I lose my wallet again, I'm just going to hate myself because I'm so stupid, right? Or I will love myself when uh, I lose this much weight, uh, when my hair cut is just right, um, you know, when uh, I don't spill yogurt on myself at lunch, you know, any number of things, right? So what's, what are the conditions through which I feel like, oh, I will love myself, but if these things happen, I won't. Right? It's very painful, right? Like it's actually very painful when you come across these conditions that you have for loving yourself or just even wishing kindness for yourself, right? So part of the practice, you know, through mindfulness too is just being able to recognize these. You know. 
Because sometimes these things come up and we don't want to see them. I don't want to see the way that I judge myself. I don't want to see the way that I put these conditions on myself, right? But actually, again, the sense of kindness is like, can I open to that? Can I actually even see that? Can I see the flaws in myself? Can I see the flaws in my relationship to myself? Right? Can I accept the fact that I'm not perfect and allow that to be okay? Love myself with that, too. So I like the quality of um, metta as defined in uh, friendship, mostly. You know, sometimes loving kindness seems like very highbrow or something like that, right? And when you do this practice, it's good to not ex- necessarily expect to have like fireworks in your heart, right? Sometimes there's fireworks and that's great, right? But just a sense of sort of like, oh, okay, kindness, gentleness, right? Uh, is, is kind of what we're going for, too. So friendship, I feel like, is the basis of all different kinds of positive human relationships. There's in the um, Buddhist teachings a famous story that you might have heard that's about uh, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, uh, who's a kind of affable character, who at one point comes to the Buddha and says, uh, you know, I think that uh, half of the holy life is spiritual friendship. So he's just sharing his reflections with the Buddha. And uh, he's, he's one of these people who actually oftentimes is mistaken about things, and so you get to learn through his mistakes. So the Buddha says, uh, no, not so, Ananda. <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, actually, the whole of the holy life is spiritual friendship. So I remember when I first heard this uh, story, I was actually on a, a three-month uh, retreat and I remember hearing that story and thinking, like, what? That's the whole of the spiritual life? Then why are we sitting and walking here for three months? Like, you know, so we could be going to have coffee and that would be the spiritual life and just chatting? Right? So, you know, it was kind of confusing to me what they were talking about with this, right? So the Buddha, it turns out, was actually kind of a punster also. Like, he was kind of a clever guy. You know, he liked wordplay a lot. So this term for a spiritual friendship also could be sort of like uh, friendship with the holy, right? Intimacy with the divine or the uh, universal, the, the uh, ultimate, right? So he's actually making a play, this is one explanation for this, on uh, spiritual friendship and actually friendship with uh, liberation, with nibbana, with freedom, right? So actually the whole of the holy life is developing your intimacy with freedom, right? Developing your intimacy uh, with the connection uh, to this, right? And also, it's important in order to help yourself to stay on the ball about uh, the path, to hang around people who are going to help you cultivate these good qualities, right? So there's one thing to notice is like, well, in terms of what are the conditions that lead to this sense of well-wishing being easy to access, right? So if you tend to hang around people who are kind and generous, right, that's really helpful, right? Uh, if you hang around people who tend to uh, speak well, speak kindly, right, uh, instead of um, like slamming on people a lot or gossiping, right, it's easier for you to do that too. Like it's easier for you to keep your speech at a like good level, right? Uh, if you're around people who are really generous, it's easier for you to be generous too, right? So noticing these things and how we affect each other is also an important piece of the um, holy life as it were. But I don't think he was saying just go have coffee with your friends all the time. I think there was something, something more to it than that. So another piece of the, the friendship uh, thing that I like to uh, 
think about is um, something that I learned from this book. Uh, it's called The Good Heart, and it's uh, some accounts of a Christian Buddhist dialogue that happened that the Dalai Lama was a part of. And this is from the uh, introduction to it, which is written um, by Lawrence Freeman, OSB. So he's a Jesuit, I believe. So he's talking about this dialogue that they have, Buddhist and Christian dialogue. And he talks about this whole section on friendship. And he talks about the uh, importance of friendship in this kind of dialogue. So I'll read you just a little bit of this. A Dalai Lama's openness to presence was crucial for the success of our seminar. His self-confidence and ease, despite the risk he was taking, set others at ease and gave us all confidence that we had nothing to lose except our fears. It became, too, the basis of a friendship that was also the bedrock of fruitful dialogue. Dialogue will certainly reduce our fears and suspicions of one another. It will make us better friends, even with people we regard as enemies or threats. Yet friendship, or at least the readiness to be real friends, is also a precondition for a good dialogue. To be friends is to trust and to be vulnerable. It involves running the risk of sharing something precious, and then perhaps of being disappointed that this precious gift is not valued or has been treated badly. As the days of the seminar passed, the intensity of human friendship among all the participants grew. It radiated, so people remarked, from the Dalai Lama and from his Christian interlocutors, who sensed that the risk they had taken in coming together was entirely justified. And they started to talk about friendship in history. So, you know, in, in uh, sort of modern uh, Western lore, the relationship form that's placed at the highest pinnacle is like romantic love, right? So all these movies in which you have to have like a romantic uh, couple come together, um, you know, talk about like, oh, we're just friends, right? Like that's less than actually if you had a romantic relationship, uh, romantic sexual relationship with someone, right? Uh, but actually I think friendship has been uh, given short shrift at this moment in our culture, right? And actually any, of, any kind of relationship, including uh, with a teacher, including with a lover, including with a partner, including with kids actually, like friendship has to be the basis of that for a healthy relationship, right? So he talks about sort of the history of friendship too. So the Christian ideal of friendship is built upon a long classical Western tradition that did not understand friendship as we often do as a diluted form of intimacy. Cicero or St. Augustine would not have understood modern journalists who say a couple are just friends, as if the only really interesting relationship is that which progresses further than friendship. In fact, for them and for many generations after that, friendship was the goal of all formative experiences of human relationship. That's, that's, that's pretty intense, right? So friendship was the goal of all the formative experiences of human relationship. Education in the widest sense was a preparation for the achievement of friendship which allowed one to share the deepest and truest part of oneself with another. Right? So being able to actually have that kind of intimacy was considered the highest form of human connection activity. Right? So he talks about this uh, saint, Saint Aylred, who wrote a book called uh, Spiritual Friendship, and he speaks of the disciplined preparation and mutual testing that precedes the full flowering of friendship, when the sweetness of trust, confidence, intimacy, and openness between the friends, flows out through the friendship to the world around them. Friendship cannot be based on anything less than the essential goodness of each friend 
and the understanding of the essential goodness of each friend. There cannot be friendship based on exploitative desire or hatred of others because these negative qualities betray human nature. A truly loyal friend, says St. Elred, sees nothing in his friend but his good heart. So this is the quality of metta, of kindness, right? developing this sense of friendship and actually valuing that, you know, valuing the cultivation of that, valuing that cultivation in relationship to oneself, right? having this sense of friendliness towards oneself and valuing the cultivation of this quality towards others. Right. You can have this sense of friendliness and also have wisdom too, right? So some people ask, well, so you have this, uh, you know, you have a sense of friendliness, but some people are going to take advantage of you. Like, you don't want to be stupid, right? Some people are, uh, are going to want something else from you or are going to, like, lie to you or whatever, right? So you can have this sense of metta, but also wisdom, right? And the wisdom can be that, you know, sometimes I want to wish well for someone, but because of their current destructive patterns and behaviors, I'll wish well for them at arm's length, right? <laughs> so it doesn't mean that they have to... Uh, live with you or be very close to you or something like that. It could be that, you know, like, I wish well for you and I can see that currently, like, uh, where you're at and what you're up to will be destructive for me. So out of kindness, compassion for myself, you know, I will actually not put myself in proximity to you, right? So there are some cases like that when that's true, right? And that's important to also balance out the kindness for oneself and the kindness to the other person, right? But even as one keeps that person at arm's length, is it possible to keep someone at arm's length, but do that with understanding, right? And to do that with understanding such that it doesn't have to be based on hatred, actually, right? But just on clear seeing, you know, what's going on right now in this person's life. So that's a challenging one, you know, and for many of us who have some situation with someone who's a difficult person, right, it's sort of like an edge to work with in our relationships, right? Most of you probably can think through your larger family and come up with someone who would fall into that category, right? (laughs) Just because uh, that's how humanity is, right? Or maybe in some way you yourself are right now in that category, right? So it's helpful to remember that too, you know, like we're in relationship to others and we're in all those different categories at different times for others too, you know. We're the neutral person to some people on the bus, right? We're actually the beloved to some people. Maybe even some people you don't know. Maybe there's like uh, a kid who looks up to you that you don't really see, uh, don't really notice that much, right? Someone who admires you, right? And maybe there's someone who actually considers you the difficult person, right? Whether you notice that or not. Like someone at your work or someone who just situationally you're in some battle with, right? So it's all kind of this kaleidoscope shifting different human relationships and the way we are with each other, right? All of which kind of gets played out Right, in many cases, sort of over and over again. Right? This also is interesting to notice sometimes is how the categories may stay the same, right? Uh, but new people shift in. You know, there's sort of insert photo here quality to the <laughs> to life, right? So, uh, you know, there's someone who's a difficult person at one workplace, and you leave there, and then you go work somewhere else, and then lo and behold, another difficult person has arisen. You know, uh, similar way. Right, and this new one, right? Different person. It's not the same person that came, but you know. So then it's time to start looking at, like, oh, what's my relationship to this, right? Like, could there be something uh, there, too? So maybe I'll leave it at that for the 
expository comments part with metta, and particularly because we actually did the practice. See if you have any questions about either the practice that we did or uh, anything that I said about the metta so far. And any question is a good question. So all is fair game. Yeah, please. Can you please comment on detachment versus non-attachment? Yeah, yeah, so detachment versus non-attachment. It's an interesting one, because even in in the um, equanimity, you know, which is sort of the having balance with the way things are, uh, the true quality of equanimity is one in which there actually is connection with people and with circumstances. Uh, And the thing that's the near enemy of equanimity is actually indifference. So indifference, sometimes it looks like you're cool, like you're equanimous, but actually you're disconnected because you're not, you know, you're not paying attention. Like, ah, it could go either way. Live, die, you know, get rich, don't get rich. I don't mind what, you know. So that's the indifference, right? As opposed to like understanding like, oh yeah, things are the way they are, right? So this quality of the, um, the metta, the kindness, is one of connection, I would say, right? Uh, of connection with ourselves, connection with others, um, of this intimacy, like a closeness, right? So the, the closeness veers into attachment when there's like a grasping quality to it, right? So it's interesting to also notice in your own mind and experience when that happens, like when there's a shift from uh, connection to something to like, you know, grasping on that, right? And to feel that shift in energy as it comes through your body and mind. Um, and then the detachment, uh, you know, sometimes that's seen as, it, that term is sort of bandied about, like, it's, oh, it's good to be detached. It's good to not cling, I think, is more the thing. Like, it's good to not uh, try to fix things, right? But if detachment connotes, like, not actually caring about something, then it's, like, off the, it's off, you're off the meta groove, you know. So the, the, Here's how it ties also into just the general understanding about the way things are. So the Dharma is like the way things are in general, right? So that's one of the understandings. The teachings of the Buddha is about the way things are, right? So among the way things are (laughs) is that everything's always changing, right? Anicca, the the three characteristics I'm going to. So everything's always changing in our own body-mind and in experience, right? Life as we know it is actually a constant flow of different sense impressions, coming through our eyes, nose, taste, hear, sense, and then the mind being the sixth sense door, right? So constantly changing, constantly changing. Because everything's constantly changing, there is no such thing as one thing in some ways, right? So there's no solidity in some ways to anything or any person, right? People are constantly changing, growing. Your body's been changing, right, all during your life, even from morning till night, depending on what you ate, right? Your body's changed and taken in those nutrients and you've drunk water and you've expelled stuff and your hair is falling out and you know, all kinds of different things happening, right? So there's some continuity, granted, but there's not like a solidity fixed, right? So because there's no solid fixed anything, then uh, the usual way that we go about life trying to find happiness is to try to find an experience that will grant us that or a person that will grant us that, right? Or a job that will grant us that. So our usual recipe for happiness is like, if I can only arrange circumstances into the correct row, you know, of circumstances, then I'll be happy. And then I'll try and hold it there, right? But because everything's always changing, you can't hold it there. <laughs> you know, you can't hold yourself anywhere. You can't, there's nothing to hold, really, right? So in that sense, the attachment is like the trying to hold things in a certain way, 
you know, I'm trying to, I don't want to try and keep you the way that you are, right? I want to try and keep this moment, right? I want to try and keep even our relationship exactly this way. But it's really impossible because everything's changing, right? Sometimes things change in ways that you like and sometimes they change in ways that you don't like, right? But it's like all going, 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 right? That's beyond our control, right? So the, the, uh, the reason I'm saying sort of not clinging versus uh, detachment is that uh, you can have actually a closeness with experience and a closeness with life and actually be there completely with this changing stream of experience, of your own experience, completely be there with others, right? And it can be a beautiful thing. Uh, in the changing, there's also a constant emergence, right? Like, oh, look, look who you are now. Like, look who you are now. Look, you know, look who I am now. Look what's here, right? right? So there can be this wonder and beauty in connecting with that. Um, but it doesn't have to be detached, like, oh, I'm over here and life is over there, you know? Like, it's, like when it gets that quality, I think that it's kind of, like, off, right? But when you get the quality of attachment, uh, you know, it's like, I want you to stay how you are. Like, I want things to stay like this, you know? Does that make sense? So when you said that uh, keep an arm's length, yeah, uh, just a distant, yeah, um, does that mean you're detaching, or you just not attached to the current situation with that person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Using language is difficult to see what it is. Um, well, you might be thinking of a particular situation. If you want to share a particular situation, you can. If you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to. No. Or like, what's a, what's an example of that? What it might be hypothetically say. I feel like detachment is that you're you're reacting to the the negatives. Yeah. Of, yeah. Rather than unattached, you're not attached to their suffering, uh-huh. but yet you have compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you like feel detached from things that you feel like you don't have control over. Um, I was noticing, for example, you know, I'm like kind of following the healthcare debates in Washington, right? What's going on with that? But I notice myself being a little detached from that because I feel like I have no control over what these people are doing you know, at this point. It's like it's just like playing out in some way, you know. And that may not be true, right? Like actually, there's probably things I can do to influence in some small way, right? But I notice when there's that sense of sort of helplessness about it. There is some detachment, and it's just like, oh, I'm watching this over there. Uh, let's see what they're going to come up with, right? Even though, actually, this is something that's going to intimately affect my life, all of our lives, right? Um, so what is it with the connection? And actually, then, in, in a smaller scale, I'm kind of interested in politics. So actually, like, I pay attention to San Francisco politics. Uh, and San Francisco is like kind of a small city, so I actually feel a connection. You know, it's like you can actually meet the people who are your representatives. You can actually... You know, it's not hard to go to City Hall or, you know. So with that one, I feel like, oh, yeah, I, I do have much more of a sense of engagement and connection in that because uh, I feel like I can influence it, right? So then it's to notice when is the attachment, right? So then if I, there's a certain vote going on, like, I want it to be this way, and I'm going to be, like, totally devastated if they don't vote for this, you know, or not. It's like, that's to see. It's like, oh, okay, I'm attached to this outcome. And if this outcome doesn't happen, then I'm going to be unhappy, Right. So is it possible to actually, and it's kind of a fine line, right? Because it's like you want to care about something. So is it possible, you know, is, um, was it, is T.S. Eliot or something? To care and not to care, right? You know, both at the same time. So to be connected, but also not to be devastated, right? And maybe that's the differences in, uh, you know, what level, like what will happen if what you want it to happen doesn't turn out, right? 
which happens a lot of the time. Right? And what's my relationship to circumstances over which I don't have full control? Which is everything. Right? <laughs> so, so what's my relationship to that? And how will that, uh, how will that be for me? And sometimes you don't know until it plays itself out, right? And then you just see, like, oh, look, like, I was really attached to that. Like, I really wanted that promotion, and I didn't get it. And, I, you know, it's making me feel really bad about myself, and then I hate the other guy who got it, and, uh, you know. So it's like, okay, that's... So I was pinning my happiness on, like, getting this thing, right? One helpful reflection that's interesting is to see how many times we told that story to ourselves. Like, oh, I'll be happy if this thing happens, Right? Like, I'll be happy when I get the new iPhone, 3G, you know. <laughs> That'll be great. That'll make my life perfect, you know. And then, you know, you might get the thing, and then it's kind of cool for a little while, but then after a while, it's just another little metal thing you have in your pocket, right? Or it's like, oh, if I can finally get that person to go out with me, then I'll be so happy, right? Then, you know, you get them to go out with you, and then they're kind of a mixed bag, too, and you know, it <laughs> doesn't seem to be turning out how it was in your dreams, and, you know, all that stuff, right? So it's like, just notice, like, each time that happens. And, uh, you know, the human impulse to be like, well, it was just, you know, I picked the wrong thing to set all my hopes on. Or, you know, it was like, you know, happiness is based on uh, finding the right thing or finding, you know, getting the right thing or finding the right person, and then I'll be happy, right, you know. Uh, So that's attachment, right? It's like, I need that thing, I need that experience, I need these circumstances to line up, and then it'll be all good for me, right? But in a, in a world of changing circumstances, in the universe of changing circumstances, you're never going to win that game. You, know, you are never going to win that game. Like, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy things or like, there's not better or worse choices to make right, in one's life, certainly. Uh, but putting your heart on final happiness in the land of experience is a losing strategy. Right? But it's like, can we still be connected to what's happening? You know, can we actually be connected? So if the, the more deeply we actually understand that there's no permanent happiness to be found in this stuff, then actually the more we can relax in some ways, right? Like the more we can actually relax uh, into the way things are and be with the interesting uh, beauty of the unfolding, right? The more we can actually be with like who someone actually is, you know? I mean, maybe an example is like, so... Uh, because I was at this birthday party, I'm thinking of this, you know, sometimes grandparents have, like, a really nice relationship with grandkids um, that they actually didn't have with their own kids, right? So sometimes with their own kids, they were like, oh, I want you to dress like this, and I want you to become a doctor, and I want you to do this and that. And, you know, there's a lot of expectation. So there's a lot of attachment to what the kid, they want the kid to do, right? And some of that comes from a good place of wanting the child to succeed and be happy, and some of that is some projection of stuff and, you know, but then oftentimes by the time people both get older and they've already been through one round of that, it seems like they're like done with that. So then the grandkids come around and they actually, I've seen this in many circumstances, just have a much more um, unconditionally loving uh, relationship to that child. You know? And the child can manifest in any number of different ways. And uh, the grand- grandparent can be like um, just interested in who they are, you know. And they're actually very connected. You know, they want to be connected to them. Like, they want to see what they're interested in. They want to see, like, how they dress. They want to hear, like, what they're, inter- they're doing at school or something, right? But not because they want to hear about it so they can control it, but just because they love that person. Like, they want to see that, right? So there's a closeness there, but the closeness is not based on, like, let me find out what you're up to so I can, like, mold you into what I need you to be. You know, it's kind of like, oh... So it's good to pay attention in different relationships. So like, why am I keeping this person at arm's distance? You know, 
Um, and you can only, only see that in your own heart because at different times it could be for different reasons. You know? Like is it I'm afraid of something? Right? Uh, that fear is also a sign of attachment too. Right? Like I don't want it to be this way. Right? I don't want something to turn out this way. So I'm going to be detached. Right? I don't want to be disappointed so I'm going like, not to ca- not care. Right? So like noticing that when that comes up in your heart. Right? Uh, or is it actually like I'm, I'm able to, be, to, to see this and to be with you but I'm also seeing with wisdom that uh, I don't want to get enmeshed in this situation. Right? So you kind of have to feel that out in your heart, like in each uh, case. It's a good question. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Others? How was the practice for you? Anything come up as we did this practice that was interesting, disturbing, surprising? I would see colors. Oh. Um, when, when I would think of someone I love very much, the first person, yeah. I saw pink. That's all I saw, pink. And then later on, when I had to look at myself, I saw dark blue. Huh. <laughs> interesting. I don't know what that's about. but <laughs> <laughs> The mind is interesting. You know, people have, have different minds. And... Uh, you know, some people have a very visual mind, you know, uh-huh. and, and see colors like that. Some people have sort of like very um, auditory kind of uh, mind and things uh-huh. like that. Um, so I think it's, with that, it's just like let it be what yes. it is. Um, but also like in all meditation, you know, instructions, it's like not to get too um, distracted by it in some way, you know, because right. the practice is like cultivating the quality of heart, you uh-huh. know. Um, and then all this other stuff can be going on. But all the other stuff is going on sort of like as a support for this uh, quality of heart. So what you can notice sometimes is like, is that, does that color correspond to a different quality of heart too? I don't know, but maybe, you know, to see like, is there a, That's, uh, That was my question to myself too. Yeah. What, what is this difference here be, between the pink and the blue and the, the blue seemed so strong and kind of somber and then the pink was very warm and kind of moving and liquid and soft. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just, observed it and let it go, but wondered about it as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to, to just uh, uh, investigate into that a little bit. Um, now, if you didn't have any colors, don't worry, it doesn't mean you didn't do it right or anything <laughs> like that. So, like, oh, I want the colors next time. Right? <laughs> um, so some people just, you know, have uh, such things happen. Um, I mean, in this practice, there's a lot of things going on. Like you're saying the phrases, and then you have an image of the person or holding the sense of them. Um, and it all is actually in service of kind of focusing your cultivation of this intention. So the whole show is really for cultivating this intention of uh, metta, right? So in some ways, all, it's all like props, right? So you're using this person, this image of this person, this image of that person. Uh, and it's for the phrases, it's all just to connect you to that energy of well-wishing, right? Uh, if it was hard for you, uh, don't worry, because, uh, or if you felt nothing, you just felt like you were like rotely saying these things and like no feeling came. Um, don't worry about that, right? Because it's actually this, qual- this practice of cultivating. So like anything else, uh, as you cultivate it more and more, then uh, you might uh, notice that more and more. And also, it's, like, it's kind of like planting the seeds, you know, as they say. Like each time you say a phrase, you're actually planting the seed of metta in your heart, right? So you might sit there for half an hour and do this, and you're like, I felt nothing. That was a big waste of time. I should have gone swimming instead, or, you know, right? <laughs> so it's not true, actually, because whatever it is, like, you're cultivating those seeds, right? And you don't know when that's going to come uh, to fruition, right? 
So you actually are digging that, that path in your heart more deeply. And then you might find by surprise, next time someone cuts you off in traffic, you're like a little bit less mad at them, right? <laughs> or something like that, you know. Uh, so there's some trust in, uh, in doing this. Also, some people have this, you know, explosion of feeling, and sometimes people don't, and sometimes it varies. That also is like not to get so caught up in that necessarily. So just your job in this practice is just to keep coming back with sincerity to each phrase, each time, right? May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I be free from suffering. You know, there's like actually this devotional quality to it in some ways. You know, it's like a devotional practice. And it also is actually a concentration practice, right? So a concentration practice is actually uh, sort of training your mind to stay steady on something, right? So like it's kind of like teaching the dog to sit, you know, the mind usually wandering all over. It's like, come back. May I be happy. May I be healthy, right? So just like teaching the dog to sit, you have to be very patient, right? Because the dog originally doesn't want to sit, runs around, smells something, runs off, chases squirrel, right? So similar with your mind. So just being very patient, keeping on coming back, right? Same as with the Vipassana practice with that, right? Cultivating these qualities. Another thing I'll say about that is that um, sometimes people are doing this practice and they find like the opposite comes up, right? So they're just saying these phrases and sometimes they feel this explosion of hatred and then they're like very, you know, alarmed by that. So this is actually also considered a purification practice, right? And actually as you do it, then it sometimes uh, highlights or allows the opposite to manifest, right? So it's like not to worry if that happens per se, but just to notice if something opposite has come up. If you can, just let go of it and go back to the phrases and to the well-wishing, you can. If it's too huge, then uh, you can actually uh, shift to doing a vipassana practice and just be with that anger or hatred or whatever it is, trying to be as non-judgmental as possible with that. Right? And uh, then when it's sort of done its energetic dance through you, then come back again to the uh, practice right, of well-wishing. This is actually a really good practice also that you can do it's, uh, anywhere, right? So like I was saying, like on a bus, or um, you can do this metta practice. I've done this practice um, as my main practice for uh, about five years, and I did it in retreats, and I did it also uh, in my daily life. And it really was very uh, transformative for me, like really changed uh, the way that I am, I feel, you know, as much as the doing uh, Vipassana practice did in some ways. Um, also, if you, if you find that you have a hard time imaging someone, bringing up an image of someone, that's something you also can uh, develop if you care to, like get better at as you do, do it more and more. Some people it comes naturally to like bringing up an image, some people it doesn't. For some people it's easier to have that sense of like, okay, I'm imagining them sitting here sort of energetically and I'm wishing well for them. So that's also sort of a fine thing to do, right? Um, so you can do it a lot of different ways. You can also be creative. So this is one way to do it sort of with these phrases. Um, other ways are like um, actually more visual. So people who are more visual sometimes like it's like um, imagining that your heart is a field of flowers, and then you invite these different uh, people, like your easy person to love and your friend and your neutral person, into the field of flowers, and you give them a bouquet. Right. So in that giving of the bouquet is that sense of well wishing. Right. So cultivating that well wishing there. Right? Uh, some people like to make up a meta song. So they have uh, their own song of uh, loving kindness that they uh, sing for themselves and then also sing, you know, well-wishing for others. So whatever it is that helps you to cultivate it and that also keeps your mind sort of focused in that, right, uh, is a good practice, right? But this phrases one is kind of like a 
a simple-ish uh, one to do, too. Okay, any other questions? Yeah. I appreciated the uh, <clears throat> question about detachment and non-attachment. Yeah. And then I think uh, I got an insight when you talked about grandmothers. Yeah. Um, one of my teachers was asked something to the effect, how can we transform society, improve society? And he replied, we need more grandmothers. Uh-huh. And uh, so I thought about that. And then something else came up. Um, there was an author who once was characterizing the relationship between grandparents and grandchildren, how it was so unique and, and uh, friendly. And then he rather cynically said, because they have a common enemy. <laughs> uh, because the children won't do what the grandparents want them to do, and the, child, the grandchildren don't like to be told what the, you know, so the, the, those parents are the common enemy. So uh, the point is that the grandparents, typically, they're, they're not attached. They have connection, for sure. I mean, that grandmother is all about connection, and, you know, for the most part. Uh, my grandmother, anyway. Um, and yet they can walk away from the situation. They don't, they're not attached. You have to do this. You have, and like you were saying, they can just generally be interested and, and without being, you know, you're going to have to get up early in the morning to go to school mm-hmm. and you can't mm-hmm. go to bed late and laying all these tricks right. on them. They can walk away from the situation if, if the situ- you know, if it ever gets a little, you know, mm. haggard. So I just thought that that grandmother is, is a perfect example, non-attachment, connection mm-hmm. yet non-attachment. Thanks. Gentlemen up here. Thanks for your uh, remarks in the talk. Um, I had a question for you about your personal experience with meta mm. meditation. You've done a lot of it and a lot of long retreats, yeah. especially when it comes to the meta for everything, for the whole world, yeah. for all yeah, people yeah. and all beings. And what you are talking about before, that sometimes you're kind of um, benefiting by even saying some of these things by rote, even though you don't feel like it's making an impact or something's happening. But that's such a big one when you're actually trying to get your heart around, you know, everything yeah. and all of the good, bad, and ugly. Just curious, personally, when you've been doing that for as long as you have, how that's progressed or uh, I think it's a classic thing that, you know, peace on earth and love for all mankind is, is a tough one for anybody to, to really hold on to if you just open your eyes to what's going on uh, and, and keep trying to cultivate that. So curious about how you've evolved with that and if it's anything you can say about that, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, some people find actually find that aspect of the practice easier. Like it's easier to wish well for everyone in this broad sense than to pick like one person because one person can really annoy you. But you know, it's like, so like I can wish well expansively. That's easy, right? And some people, the opposite because the expansive seems so big and, you know. Um, I found both of them, uh, both of the practices really powerful. And in the wishing well for all beings, there's actually many different ways that you do that classically. So one is actually in... Um, wishing well directionally, so actually like may all beings to this, you know, the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, up, down, you know. So as you do that, like, and when you do it intensively, you do it from the moment you wake up, you know, sitting, walking, eating, all this stuff. 
So then you're kind of like this meta beacon, you know, it's like kind of like you're exuding meta like all, you know, ways. Uh, so that one, I think that the sense of expansion of that, expansiveness um, is one of the aspects that I liked about that more and that I cultivated more uh, through that practice. And then sometimes there's a sort of like doing different categories of being, sort of dividing them into different categories. Uh, so, you know, you could do all the beings in the air, all the beings in the land, all the beings underground, all the beings in the water, kind of different ones like that. I think in all of that, what helps a lot is the sense of equanimity, you know, sort of understanding that there are so many different forms of life on the planet, you know, and like everyone, you know, even in just this room, like everyone's had their own story of their life, right? Like everyone's been born into different circumstances, different health, different family members, different talents, different fortunes, right? And then all of that has changed for everyone through the course of their life, right? And that is going on for all beings all the time, right? So just holding that, and, and also, also none of us are in control of all of that, right? Like you were born into a family and those are the people you got at the moment, right? It's like, there, there it was, right? So this sense of it's like we aren't in control of it, and yet all of us really poignantly like feel pain and want to be happy, right? So like, uh, you know, squirrels, you know, in a more, um, you know, seemingly fundamental way, but like they too want like enough nuts for the winter and, you know, all, whatever their squirrel happiness is or they're afraid of predator, you know. So you can kind of get the sense, and I think as you do it more and more, then it makes you sort of more uh, connected. You know, this practice is about the interconnection, right? Uh, I guess what I'm really curious about is you, you, you've done it a lot. I mean, yeah. I haven't done it, I've done it a lot, but not that much. And what you say about cultivation is really fascinating. It sounds like yeah. your experience is that cultivating it even blindly, your heart grows in that direction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you do the best you can with the cultivation. So, um, like, I think it is that, you know, sometimes it seems like it's rote, but if you're doing the best that you can with it, then it's not rote, right? Because if you actually are doing it rotely, um, such that... Um, Sometimes you notice you're doing it rotely because then you start saying different word, world, different words that don't make sense. Then it's like, okay, I'm off track, right? <laughs> so, uh, or someone saying this joke that they were doing it, and then they started saying like, "May you have peas," you know? It's like, oh, <laughs> like that's that's not, you know. So then you've kind of lost the train. But even with, with just a little bit of sincerity, like whatever you can muster for, may you be at peace, may you be happy, right? Uh, and it's, it's a total gradient, and that gradient is based on concentration too. Like how much can we focus in our mind on whatever it is that we're trying to do, right? Um, it does have an impact, and both it develops the concentration and it develops that cultivation of that quality. So, um, yeah, I'm a, like, you know, huge fan of this practice. I think it's very, very powerful. Doing it on intensive retreat is amazing also. It's like, um, you know, semester abroad in the divine abodes, you know, basically, you know, to have that level of concentration and to be able to connect to that sense of kindness uh, is really transformative, you know. It also just allows your system to sense what that actually feels like. Like, what does it actually feel like to be soaking in kindness, to be exuding kindness for this period of time? And I think as our systems become more and more used to that, then we notice more and more when we're not, and that becomes less and less tolerable for us, you know. Like, we actually notice dukkha uh, at deeper and deeper levels and then uh, want to get free, like, want to be free of that. So there's this, uh, you know movement towards that freedom uh, as well. So I think we're out of time now. So maybe we'll just sit for a moment and uh, share the merit from our practice for one second.
So again, appreciating ourselves for having come here tonight. Appreciating all of the friends here who have practiced with us and sharing the blessings from our practice tonight with all beings. Just as we wish to be happy, so do all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you.